So as a podcast listener, you may not know about the On Being blog. We have brilliant regular columnists at onbeing.org addressing the tumult of this moment with generative wisdom every day, every week. You might enjoy Courtney Martin's emboldening piece, The Twin Forces of Love and Resistance, or find one of the insightful commentaries from other contributor writers and listeners from all walks of life. Find it all at onbeing.org slash blog. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Dana Boyd. Download the MP3 of our produced show at onbeing.org. This is Angie Hello. How are you? Hi. Good. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I really appreciate your work, and I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? Um, so I mean, we're we're doing a pre-record, so it, we're basically I can start over. Or, yeah, totally. Um, it can be real. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and um, and I know you want to get out. Um, we'll, we'll get you out well before. Uh, what is it? Four four thirty. Four thirty. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. In preparation for tonight's holiday. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'll be okay. Yes. Uh, you want to do the soundtrack. The thing is, is you're asking this question to somebody who is in Manhattan, who has no idea actually how to drive around this town. But the subway was quite lovely. Does that give you what you need? <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, let's let's just dive in then. Um, uh, you know, I always I start all my conversations... Um, whoever I'm speaking with, with this question. Um, and I'm, I'm curious because I didn't read anything about this in your, um, I didn't read much about it in your autobiographical stuff. I just wonder, wonder if there was a religious or spiritual background to your childhood or how you would, how you would describe that. It's an interesting and challenging question in part because um, my mother uh, was very Catholic and um, very much believed in the Catholic Church, was very active in the Catholic Church. And then um, she and my father divorced and um, there was a lot of um, unhappiness there. Mm. And this was, of course, absolutely antithetical to the uh, to the church. And so um, mm. my mother's priest was told or told her that you know she made her bed she should sleep in it and so part of what was interesting for me growing up in light of that my mother's you know being you know kicked out of the church trying to make sense of it is that it forced me into a lot of questioning um what what did religion mean to me what did community mean to me how did i think about these things uh and i you know was one of those teenagers who actually spent a lot of time trying to explore and make sense of it mm. um i tried to convert that's completely confounding, um, and uh, it's been one of those things that has just made sense to me ever since. But it's one of those strange dynamics where I've had 
or the role of religion and spirituality in people's lives, um, but I've never really found my own common ground with it. It's been more cultural and very much dependent on the people around me. Mm-hmm. Although you are observing the, the Jewish holidays today. So my partner is Israeli, mm-hmm. um, who, and he is convinced that uh, uh, that Yom Kippur is an Israeli holiday, not a Jewish holiday, okay. uh, which is always a hysterical <laughs> distinction. Um, <laughs> Uh, right. But it's one of the agreements that we've made is that uh, my son will be re- raised with a lot of the cultural awarenesses of Judaism, um, although oddly often divorced from uh, the traditional religious components of <laughs> okay. it. So we're, we're, we're still working it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so what year were you born? I was born in 1977. Okay. So, so I, uh, this is the way I wrote the question out, and I, I hope it makes sense to you. I wondered how, how would you begin to tell the story of the emergence of immersive social technologies, you know, what we mean these days when we talk about technology and how it's changing our lives. How would you begin to tell that story through this, uh, in, that, in our lives uh, collectively through the story of your life? So, you know, my brother um, got access to a computer when uh, he was in middle school, and I didn't understand what this piece of equipment was for or why he would spend so much time on it. Um, and then he did the terribly horrible thing to um, a teenage sister where he hooked it up to a phone line and used up the phone line to make horrible beeping sounds. <laughs> um, of course, this is early day modems. And I remember right. I marched into his room one day. I'm like, what are you doing? Um, and I was you know, upset, and I was like, get off the phone. Your computer should not be making sounds into the phone. And he showed me um, different online uh, bulletin boards. And all of a sudden, I realized that this computer was made out of people. And the computer became much more interesting to me once it was made out of people. And so um, alongside my brother, he ended up introducing me to a whole different world. Um, I spent my teenage years in some of those early online communities, you know, BBSs and Usenet and different kinds of chat rooms. So this would be like like late 80s, early 90s into the 90s? Is that- this is this is um, early '90s, yeah. um, and then and you know I still remember my brother bringing home a book, um, and it would have been 1994, and it was a yellow pages of every single web page out there, right? And just as as um, the World Wide Web had been, uh, or just as Mosaic had come out. Um, and so, of course, I became interested. Of course, this has a history, right? 1979 is when Usenet came into being, and that's sort of the first big public forum. Emails before that, um, but you know, I'm I'm entering this at, at an environment at a time when everything is about to shift. Only yeah. I don't know that. Right? Yeah. I, I'm not aware of that when I'm I'm entering into it. And the early adopters of those social technologies, the part that I was at the tail end of, were self-identified geeks, freaks, and queers. And I was all three, so it felt really (laughs) comfortable and quite at home. Um, But it wasn't something that was remotely cool. In fact, I think that if it was cool, I would want nothing to do with it. Um, It was the fact that it was um, a totally separate practice that introduced me to a world that was much larger than my hometown. Hmm. Um, And I loved that. And I was a part of that cohort that imagined that I should therefore build these systems, which is how I studied computer science to begin with. Gosh, You know, it's so interesting. I mean, reading you kind of brought me back to my own story. And it's kind of interesting as we probably all, each of us has a story of our life with technology because it is so social now. But, you know, I remember I graduated from college. I also went to Brown, like you. And I I graduated in 80. And I remember one thing about, about those, so 79 to 83, I mean, you were alive, but tiny 
And, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, there were, you could, students had com- access to the computer center or something. Mm-hmm. And as you say, CRT. it was only these geeky people. And so we all gave away our time because we couldn't imagine why <laughs> we would have wanted to spend any time with these computers. Um, and then I remember, you know, graduating in 83 and these predictions were out there about personal computers. I mean, even then, everything was typed on a typewriter, right? And those predictions about personal computers, even into the mid-80s, sounded absurd. So, I mean, I think it's, gosh, it's so important to just take note of how recent this change is. I'll never forget, I um, was giving a talk to a group of middle schoolers, and I asked them to submit questions ahead of time. And this uh, one young boy, he submitted a question of who found the Internet? Not who founded, not who invented, but who found it. (laughs) It was clearly something out there that somebody must have embarked on a long journey and somehow stumbled across and found it. And I was like, that's amazing. It's just, you know, made my heart totally melt. Well, it's like... I mean, it's like it's like the question of whether whether Einstein, you know, discovered or invented the law of relativity, like whether mathematics is discovered or invented, that for this generation, the Internet is so much in the fabric of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just there. And I think that that reality of it just connecting people to information, you know, it's that moment where you're like, you know, you're talking to someone and they're like, well, how did you look up information before this? Like, how did you know where to go? Yeah. I'm like, there were these things called maps, <laughs> like yeah. paper maps. Um, and they're like, hmm, I'm not sure I believe you. Right? I know. I love that. So, you know, you've written about, um, you, you've written in a few places that, that the Internet actually um, was a very transformative and kind of redemptive um, thing in your high school years. That it was that it that that um, that it helped you survive. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, or I guess I should probably give in case you cut. Um, you know, as a teenager, I didn't really belong in my class environment. Um, I, sorry, as a teenager, I didn't really belong in my high school. I didn't fit in. I wasn't comfortable. I always felt like I was on the outskirts of things. Maybe some of that is me. Maybe that is something my peers. But I just really didn't feel like I belonged. And I really struggled with it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the Internet allowed me to do is it allowed me to connect to people around the globe. This was before we were afraid of strangers. And, mm-hmm. in fact, mm-hmm. you know, my mother was of this mindset that any use of a computer must be educational because that was the only reason one would have a computer. Um, so we will ignore what I did late at night um, because she just figured it was educational. Oh, that's so interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I ended up connecting to all of these people. And there are two you know, connections that are, are most memorable for me. Um, and these are, you know, in those days of um, BBSs and, and Usenet. Um, one was of a tra- with, with a transgender woman. Um, and as I was trying to figure out my own sexuality and my gender identity and trying to make sense of who I was, here's this woman who was allowing me to ask wholly inappropriate questions, right? Questions that I'm <laughs> totally ashamed to think that I had asked mm-hmm. because I didn't understand her experience. I didn't understand what she was going through. But she also understood that I was a teenager and that I was open. And so we ended up having these crazy dialogues mm-hmm. about gender, about sexuality, about how the two come into conversation. And it was 
absolutely mind-blowing for me. Um, you know, and I never met her. I don't know much about her from other than what she told me, but it didn't matter because she opened my eyes in such critical ways. Um, the other conversation that was absolutely, you know, essential during that period was that I had intended to go into the military, and um, this was during the first Iraq war, and um, uh, a young man who was serving over in Iraq was just talking to me about what it was like to be a soldier and what the military was like and what his experiences were like and how he was trying to make sense of, you know, life in the Middle East. Um, and again, it was not somebody I was ever looking to meet or to, you know, connect with in any physical sense, but somebody who allowed me to see something that I literally couldn't see in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And when did you start your blog? So when I went to Brown, um, we were all messing around with HTML in different ways. Um, I had already created an Ani DeFranco lyrics page. Um, you know, I guess that would have been circa 95. Which, which um, still exists, and, a repository which for still every, all the lyrics Ani DeFranco <laughs> has ever written. And for my own, it's all for me because I really wanted to be able to access them at any point when I needed to scream. Um, mm-hmm. And I (laughs) use those song lyrics all the time. Um, But I'm glad they're useful to other people, too. So when I was at Brown in 96, um, I was, you know, messing around with all sorts of different things about uh, HTML. I was working on some of the early um, hypertext mechanisms um, at that time. And um, in the process, I ended up taking a class, an independent study um, in a religious studies department with um, a teacher who um, was thinking about Buddhism and the role that Buddhism could provide um, in spiritual understandings. And um, he ended up transitioning before the class would begin, and he, he moved um, uh, out of state. And so we decided to keep mm. this class up um, as an independent study. And so he asked us to find a way to communicate with him everyday reflections. And because the independent study happened to be all computer scientists, we all decided that we would make a website that would be dedicated to our reflections, our daily, weekly reflections for this class. Um, and this was in the spring of 97. And, um, you know, totally you know, unaware of what was going going to come, I created each page as a day, and I had forward and backward buttons, um, so you could have these posts, and I had a calendar, and you could click on the calendar and, um, you know, see any one of those pages. And after this class was done, I found that this practice was so meditative for me. Mm. It was so valuable to reflect on what I was seeing, what I was thinking about, how I was feeling, that I kept it up um, with an audience of about one, right, for you know, many, many years. And was it, was it called Epiphania then as well? Um, it didn't have a title to the best that I knew. I loved that term. Yeah, and where did and you that discover term, that term? And yeah, I'd say what that oh. means. So Epiphania is about making connections where none previously existed. And yeah. it's usually referring to a cognitive disorder where there are synaptic connections made um, in unpredictable ways. People often know this through Oliver Sacks' work, um, you know, the man is the hat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was, I, where did I first stumble? I want to say it would have been a freshman psychology class. Um, and I just, I loved the concept because I felt as though that was the very essence of what thinking was about, was making these unpredictable connections. Yeah. Um, and so I loved it. So I called a lot of things apophenia. And so when, um, I don't remember which stage I moved to a platform that required the blog to have a title. Right. I'm not sure what year that was, but I remember it being like, oh, I need a title. Well, this is the word I'm using all the time, so we'll call it apophenia. It is also a um, wonderful word to, to, to put into the context of talking about technology. It's great. Oh, and it's also perfect for thinking about you know me as a researcher, right? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, wasn't what I was thinking about then, but mm-hmm. that's fundamentally what research is. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, ah, 
it ends up being a perfect term over a long period of time. So much so that I've fought people over that term. <laughs> people are like, it's mine. And I, um, I'm trying to think, who was it? Oh, there's a there's a famous science fiction writer who refers to that concept in a in a book, and I'm I think it's William Gibson, um, and it was years later. But I would I got this onslaught of uh, comments and requests and whatnot from his fans. People wanted to buy the blog, buy the name, and I'm like, no, mine, mine. No, it's great. You should hang on space. to it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so one of the way you talk about um, about the focus of your work is that you're interested in everyday practices involving social media and that you enjoy watching the evolution of practice. And I, I think those, that, that's, that's an interesting, those are interesting phrases. And I, I think what I'm, what I'm interested in kind of delving into with you is, um, you know, the, the evolution of us as human beings and, and technology becoming part of that in new ways, becoming part of human relationship and identity in new ways. And and I think, you know, but and I, and I, I know we're going to have a rich discussion about that. I also know that one of the things you point out very articulately um, is that a lot of the things we bemoan about our lives with technology and the change it's bringing is, is, are not so new, right? I mean, you have this mm. great sentence, even the most fleeting acquaintance with the history of information and communication technologies indicates that moral panics are episodic and should be taken with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, I, so, you know, part of why I got into the idea of everyday life was, um, I'm really enamored by a sociologist named Irving Goffman. He was one of my great influences in terms of a lot of how I think about things. And he moved in a sociological sense from thinking about these large structural systems to just the everyday practices, right? And he's known for thinking about the mundane in many ways um, and helping people untangle and make sense of it. And even when I realized that technology was understood to be, you know, this radical transformation and all of these, you know, these hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties were placed on it, I also realized we were going to move more and more into a world in which technology would just be mundane. And mm. indeed, for teenagers, they look at you like you're an alien. If you're just like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. They're like, it's a phone. I know what a phone <laughs> is. I've used a phone for a long time. Why is this a big deal? Right. Um, and so I wanted to see what would happen, not at the margins, not at the edges, not at the grand level, but what happens when these technologies are just a part of life? Mm. How do people use them? How do they integrate them into all of their practices? And you know, part of that you know, technological perspective is also because, you know, given where I grew up um, and in, in, in a temporal sense, there were all of these great hopes and dreams, right? The internet would be this magical transformation. Yeah. It would create a level of egalitarianism. It would, it would be the freeing democratic, you know, mechanism for the world writ large. It would bring about the next enlightenment, all of these big dreams. Yeah. And I sort of scratched my head being like, mm, I'm not sure this is how this is going to play out, right? And what intrigued me was that as these technologies became part of everyday life, what we saw is that people brought with them all of their flaws, right? Yeah. All of their everyday concerns and interests. And that's what makes it really tricky because we want to see the extremes, but the practices themselves are just about what it says about humanity, yeah, right. I mean, there's another great, great sentence of yours, that the Internet mirrors, magnifies, and makes more visible the good, bad, and the ugly of everyday life. 
and that 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 also what you're saying and it's worth you know dwelling on that that you know pain and prejudice uh, offline translate into pain and prejudice online uh, and likewise c- community and 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 you know all kinds of good things <laughs> good things offline translate into online right and i think it's a fullness part of, of it is also yeah, and then how do we read it, right? And this is mm-hmm. where I think I get worried. That's that visibility marker, which is that, you know, we read meanness and cruelty, for example, and we say, oh, my gosh, bullying must be so much worse because of the Internet, right? Mm-hmm. Even as the data shows otherwise. We read prejudice online and we're like, oh, my gosh, it must be the Internet that's causing us to be a racist society right? without realizing that we are a racist society <laughs> and we're just making it visible online. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't take Ferguson for us to remember that. And so I think that this is where it's this moment of saying, oh, my gosh, we have this tool that allows us to step out of our own assumptions about what the world is like and try to make sense of it. And then we have to get strategic about how to really address the things in those societies, things in society we don't like, right? I happen to, you know, be very violently opposed to prejudice and racism. Like, this is something I would like to see us address. But rather than flipping out at the technology, I want us to get at the systemic issues. Right. I want us to get at the underlying issues that affect what we see visibly online. And I think that the worst thing we can do is just clamp down on the visibility, because that's not how we actually address the the, the core issues here. Right. And 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 you make um, y- you say so. So a lot of the hand wringing. Um, and I, I know that you pay a lot of attention to this, comes on the part of parents. Um, and one of the things you say that, again, gets back to that kind of everyday level is that, that social media in kids' lives, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but in a sense is a, is a kind of antidote to overstructured, overscheduled lives that, that we, the world of adults, have created for children now. You know, one of the anxieties I heard whenever I was out in the field was it was like, oh, my gosh, kids these days, what's wrong with them? Why don't they just go outside like we did when we were kids? Go outside and play. Yeah, Go outside and play. And then from when I would talk to teenagers, they would look at me and be like, I would love to have the freedom to just go out and play with all my friends, (laughs) but I can't. And then they'd start listing off all of these different reasons. And I started stepping back and going, wow, I need to untangle where this disconnect is. And I realized that, you know, over the last 30 years, a lot has changed about American society. You know, we have a tremendous amount of fear mongering that emerged in light of 24-7 news, right? Like, think the late 1970s. The 1980s were filled with the introduction of all sorts of laws around curfew and anti-loitering and anti-trespassing. We, you know, created this concern that, you know, public spaces like the park were a terrible, terrible place. We were worried about latchkey kids. We were worried about school buses. We clamped down on young people and we started, especially in middle upper class environments, structuring every day of their lives. We increased the levels of homework. We put tremendous amounts of pressure on young people. And all they want to do is just hang out with their friends. Mm-hmm. And part of what made it so you know, visible to me is it wasn't just a matter of them getting on their bike and going out you know, and being home by dark, which was the old way. It was the fact that they need all of their other friends to be allowed to do so, too. Oh, yeah. And that's where yeah. we started to see that difficult. Because like, even if a parent was like, oh, you have flexibility, if your friends don't, mm-hmm. there's no point. Mm-hmm. And along comes this technology, 
And this technology all of a sudden is like, I know I can get to my friends and my broader peer group, even when I'm stuck at home, even when our, our timing is slightly off because of our structure schedules being slightly different. And I know that they're there. And all of a sudden you see a social technology being able to work as a mediator in light of all of these other you know, cultural conditions that we've forgotten that we created. It's so interesting, isn't it? When you when you connect all those dots, right? I mean, you're right. Yeah, this is certainly this is another thing that we catastrophize about that the world is such a dangerous place, and 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 it's it's simply not true, is it? I mean, the world has always been a dangerous place, but we're more aware of it in certain ways. Well, I mean, but the world really isn't that dangerous. I mean, yeah. yes, there are yeah. certain parts of the world where yeah. you know certain things are highly risky, but you know there have been reports. I, w- I was reading a report last week, actually. A news story um, of a woman in Texas who was allowing her child to, you know, be at the park that was out uh, across the street from her house. She could see her child from the window and was allowing um, her child outside. And Child Protective Services was called. Right, and all of a sudden she's in the middle of the bureaucratic nightmare that is, you know, government uh, intervention around Child Protective Services simply because she allowed her child to play in the park alone. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you look at most parks in this country, there are actually laws um, that govern different towns and, and cities that say that young that children cannot be by themselves in parks. Mm. And this is, you know, if I, if I give this over to my grandparents and be like, can you imagine? They, they just look at me like I'm an alien. Like, there's no way that law really exists. I'm like, yeah, it does. And so then we forget how we've slowly moved um, from a point of giving young people freedom to explore to a point where we have clamped down so heavily on them. You know, and it's it's funny because um, the curfew laws were a really interesting one around this, and there was all of this great you know effort to increase curfew laws, and some scholars actually were researching it, being like, did it impact the things that the um, local governance structures assumed it would? Right? Mm-hmm. Did it decrease violence? Did it increase school attendance? Did it you know these other metrics that that people were concerned about? And the answer was it pretty much had no impact on any other metric that we were aiming for. And I'll never forget, there was an interview done with um, the mayor of New Orleans at the time, uh, who was asked, you know, here's this data, what do you think? And he basically responded, well, it's still a better it's still a better town when the kids are off the street, right? And you start to <laughs> okay. realize that this is even when we have data that suggests that this is not the direction we should move in, mm-hmm. even when we have a radical decrease in violence, even when there's no correlation between, you know, freedom and violence, we still keep clamping down more and more on young people and on any parent who allows their child to have freedom. So, do we do we similarly, is it your sense that we similarly overemphasize the dangers involved in roaming around the Internet? And also, are we in danger of over-regulating that or regulating it in a way that doesn't make sense? I mean, from my perspective, absolutely. I and mean, this is where, again, you start to look at the data. Usually when we talk about um, dangers online, we, f- we, we hit a couple of different areas. It's usually conduct, contact, and content, right? Those mm-hmm. are the C- three Cs. Conduct is where we get worried about bullying. Well, actually, when you look at the data, you see that you know, there's no rise of bullying and correlated with the Internet. Um, young people continuously report and have for the last decade that bullying is worse at school with greater emotional duress and more serious consequences. Um, when we untangle all of what's going on around there, we find that um, young people are really struggling, you know, writ large with bullying, but they're not actually seeing the Internet as anything other than a support network in light of it. Well, and, of course, there know, are exceptions to this, and well, that's right. part of what makes people anxious. Th- and this is where the media plays a role in it. 
but also, um, I, I, I actually have, have read you and heard you speaking about this in ways that I think turn that on its head a bit, because I think that some of your research suggests, I mean, as you're saying, right, that it's, again, it's this, it's what's happening in the offline world that finds reflection in the online world. But I think online, um, the visibility of bullying just, and some of those terrible cases, um, presented uh, American culture with this phenomenon, you know, in, in, in a way that we couldn't ignore it that has been in our midst for generations, right, forever. Um, and I, it's, and, right, and so that's in some And this goes back to why we should be using the visibility to address it. Right. Like I'm the biggest proponent of addressing bullying, but I don't think it starts by trying to just address cyberbullying. Yeah. I think it begins by seeing how we address bullying. And one of the things we know as researchers, punitive approaches do not work. They make things worse. And yet all across the country, we're seeing new punitive laws because they're so much easier to introduce than the kinds of social-emotional learning skills, the empathy-building mechanisms that are required all community involvement. Okay. We know that much of what needs to happen has to happen you know, educationally. It has to happen culturally. But that's much harder. But yet that's what we need to do if we're going to change this. And so instead we try to clamp down on the technology. We try to go after the most extreme cases and extrapolate from there. We try to you know, find new ways of punishing people. But this is not going to address the issue. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, at the end of the day, I'm concerned about addressing the issue, which is a, which not is the symptoms. a way human beings treat other human beings. And then doesn't some of your research also suggest that young people actually use that visibility of the Internet to create phenomena that other people will see that they kind of what have you call it that they drama dra- yeah, the, <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> or and, even um, self-bullying that they make this stuff up right because they can't so, get attention to it in real life well they're looking for attention right mm-hmm. and so the the issue of self-bullying that um you know i looked at and, and then another researcher named elizabeth englander looked at in more detail emerged because of a question and answer service called Formspring, and it, it, it that evolved in something called um ask.fm and we i was looking at this and I understood the technology enough to be really struggling with the media narrative. The media narrative was like, this is a terrible site where everybody is just bullying each other anonymously. But the thing about that site was that in order for a question, a cruel question to appear, somebody needed to choose to answer it. And so I was sitting there going, why would somebody answer a cruel question about themselves? That seems mm. nonsensical. And so I went to Formspring and I said, can you help me figure this out? And they dove, and I gave them a bunch of examples of pretty egregious, um, cruel questions and answers. And they dove in and we went back and forth. And they found that the same IP address asked the question as, as answered it. Mm-hmm. And what that means you know, for the non-technical is that it was the, basically the same computer. Um, and it would do so under 20 minutes. In other words, it was most likely a young person asking themselves a cruel question and then answering it you know, back to themselves. But in public, and I was, kind of, right? In public. Yeah. And I was really struggling with this. And so then between me and Elizabeth, we you know, dealt into it in different ways. And we found that young people had to show that they were tough. They could handle anything. And they also had to... Um, you know, they loved that moment of getting all of the love and attention that would come back from it, right? You, you're awesome. Don't listen to those anonymous people. Mm. I think you're the best, et cetera, et cetera. Now, part of it is also put those kinds of practices in a broader context, in a, you know, in a broader context of drama and the kinds of interpersonal conflict that we see all over the place. And what I started to realize was that this is the message they're receiving all over the place about how adults interact, 
We call it politics. We call it reality TV. (laughs) We call it news. Mm. And we make a level of aggression and, you know, critique and tearing people apart part of our national pastime. Rather than than substance. And so we see that that uh, in our media. But we also see it in our homes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would sit in people's homes and I would be startled by these parents who would lament bullying as a major issue. And then they'd sit there and talk poorly about their colleagues at work and their neighbors. You know, they would, you know, go off on different, you know, political actors in different ways or, you know, critique um, public figures, uh, you know, for their dress or their attitude or their behavior. And I'm just sitting here going, do you realize what you're modeling? <laughs> right? Like, Do you have any sense of what you've created as normalized? And young people in many ways are replicating all of the messages they see around them about how to treat other people. And this is one of the reasons why interventions aren't punitive in terms of in terms of effectiveness it's really about creating entire cultural changes right. and saying actually we need to step back and think about how we hold people accountable when they're cruel for attention because we've made that into something that is a commercial reality but do, do you think there might be some actually really positive side to this and to the internet in particular in that when these things get amplified and put out into public um, and sometimes with really terrible consequences that we can't help but see together, that it actually, in that, in this sense, social media and technology can trip, you know, can be contributing to us being more honest and growing up a bit culturally. I mean, the answer is I hope so. Mm-hmm. And there are examples where we see people, particularly in a more political context, pushing back. You know, I will never forget, you know, this past summer, you know, in light of everything that was happening in Ferguson, um, you know, the media was covering it in, in pretty problematic ways originally. And I saw a group of young black individuals decide to get up on Twitter and, and make a hashtag if I was shot. And they would show two different pictures. Right. What and they basically asked the question, which picture would the media show of me, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, my skin color or or all of this. And you start to realize it was just a beautiful media critique of what was going on, a beautiful way of speaking back to one of the major amplifiers of information, right? The media you know, ecosystem um, by trying to find a different way to speak back. And this is where there's a lot of beauty in memes. There's a lot of beauty in watching people try to amplify things that are messy, right? That in order to challenge the status quo, the the normative narrative. um, And so this does happen, you know, at a more local level, it's, it's, you know, this, this other question of how do people respond to what they see? You know, I am nervous um, there's new data that has come out from um, the folks at Pew that show that if you have um, a network of people on social media who believe politically in things that are different than you, you are less likely to speak out and speak up and share your thoughts. And mm-hmm. I worry about what that means in terms of homogeneity within the society. I worry about purposeful um, self-segregating based on views and values. Right. Um, so just because this stuff is visible and accessible doesn't mean that people want to look. In fact, people are often very discomforted by the things that force them to think or, or challenge their assumptions or position them in a way that is different than they hope, how they hope to be positioned. Yeah, and, But I mean, again, that's also the way we behave in, uh, you know, in the flesh, <laughs> right? 
It is, but what's intriguing is how much it gets magnified in this environment because mm-hmm. of the fact that you can actually look at this asynchronously. You can see somebody's political views over an extended period of time. Mm. Um, and, you know, we also have technologies that curate stuff for us, right? And that's that's what you will hear Eli right. Paris are talking about is the filter bubble. Right. Um, and so how do we resist this? Because, you know, I, I'm thinking about, um, there's a great scholar uh, at Harvard named Banaji, and she did this phenomenal work on diversity in, in workforce environments. And we know, of course, for a long time that the more diverse a, a workforce team is, the better they, you know, produce in a whole variety of things. But her research found that actually they perceive themselves to be producing at a much lower lower rate than they actually are, and they believe themselves to be much more miserable, right? And so even when they're outperforming uh, a homogenous team, they see themselves as doing more poorly. So how do we deal with that in light of, you know, mechanisms that are about self-reporting or self-awareness? How do we deal with this in terms of people's own comfort levels? Being out of your comfort zone is where so much learning happens, and yet people don't really necessarily want to do that. And, you know, I've been wondering as I'm reading you, and this is another, this is a phrase that gets tossed around like crazy, that we're all in our bubbles, right? That we're in our bubbles and that the internet makes that even more possible and <clears throat> that you can completely seclude yourself with people who are just like you. Um, it seems to me that what you suggest in your work is that, of course, the bubbles are there, um, and but that but that um, we need to cultivate skills of active search uh, and that, that, you know, this same medium does make search possible in an extraordinary way. Um, I guess, you know, when I, when, I, when I think about something like that, I, I think that, you know, as you said, human being, you know, we're kind of inclined in general not to make ourselves uncomfortable. But I wondered if you feel like there's anything, if this new generation um, has any new inclinations or new skills because of this life they're leading with technology, I don't know. I'm just. I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, how do you purposefully move in the other direction once you're aware of it, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think a lot about Ethan Zuckerman's work about xenophilia. How do you appreciate global context? So what is xenophilia? Isn't it the love like, of other cultures? Yeah. Right? So the, how do you appreciate the love of all other cultures, right? which is the concept of xenophilia? How do, you, how do you go and seek out and learn, right? This is traveling. This is all sorts of different dynamics around that. Um, and he thinks about it in terms of technology because you don't necessarily need to go to another country to appreciate where they're coming from if you learn to listen to them. But this, of course, becomes an active choice. And, if, you know, Ethan happens to have been involved in projects to do this and to encourage people to do this. What is interesting to me is how do you get people to realize that this is valuable? The reality is that this is valuable on a lot of different dimensions. It's not just a, a do good, feel good kind of thing. You know, diversity is critical. Diversity of your network is critical for your, the future of your employment, right? Yeah. The more diverse your network is, the more that you will actually, um, you know, have a better stance, uh, a better chance of uh, withstanding, uh, you know, ups and downs within the in the workforce environment, right? And so this is the weird joke where it's like, I wish people could sit and actually visualize their LinkedIn in a meaningful way and basically say, you have failed <laughs> to build out diversity of network in this regard. Right. Go, go find new people. Um, and the same is actually true in terms of being an informed citizen. Like, you know, a- 
as an American, we have a, a strong cultural belief in democracy, but we've forgotten a lot of what that means. Yeah. And a huge <clears throat> chunk of democracy is about being an informed citizen. So what if there are tools that reflect back to us and saying, hey, your worldview is extraordinarily narrow. Here are things that you could look at in different ways. And we've seen researchers experiment with this. But part of it is how do you get that to be a part of the broader cultural consciousness? How do you get it to fit within people's selfish interests? Because this is not just a do-good, feel-good thing. This is actually about the values that we um, espouse and about the things that will make us successful um, as part of the society. So, so it's really not <clears throat> it's not generational so much as it's about us holding each other accountable, accountable culturally, finding, finding ways to cultivate that, that move. Right. I think the the challenge generationally is that we're moving in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, and I think about this in two arenas. Um, the, Amer- the elite American university experience has historically been an engineering experiment, a social engineering experiment. You, your roommate in college was not arbitrarily assigned. It, the idea was to actively make diversity happen on college campuses because it was really beneficial to people. Um, and students, actually, without even realizing it, leverage that for the rest of their lives. Mm. What's been tricky is that with social media, people have come and found who their college roommate is before they've even shown up. And they're like, I, w- I want to shift. I don't want to be in that dorm. I don't want to be with that you, person. You know what they're doing now? The colleges aren't giving people the name until they arrive. That's I one know. of the things. That's, because that's, they that's know they their Google response. them. <laughs> yep, that's been their response to this yeah. because it's become so problematic mm-hmm. because it's it undermines what the value of that process is. But diversity, you know, and not just in terms of um, you know classic demographics, but on every every axis we can imagine, diversity is really critical at making the elite colleges as good as they are. The other place where we undermine it for young people is actually our U.S. military system. It used to be that you could rely on the fact that the military was quite diverse in terms of who would enter it. And for working class individuals who would enter into the military, they had a pretty classic pathway to to middle class life. Um, And because of the privatization of huge chunks of the military, we no longer build out that network and that diversity within the military. Mm. It still happens to a certain degree within the contracting mechanisms around the military. But it's really sad to me because that actually was so important for building out a fabric of understanding Mm. for many generations. So um, I'm curious about some of the ways in which... There are there are real human cultural shifts happening in our time, um, and how those are maybe not so much being caused by technology, but certainly converging with technology. So, for example, um, I just think the whole nature of identity on so many levels is so much more fluid than it was before. There's been this falling away in so many aspects of life of categories and taboos that applied in previous generations. I mean, and applied forever. I mean, just like you might, you said, your mother was divorced. And, and it wasn't, you know, she was Catholic, so there was that double problem with it. But, but it's, it's just very recent that, that you know, it's a, there are certain, um, there's cer- certain kinds of status that are just okay. Or, or, or you know, the, the language of queer, which has been a part of your vocabulary all of your life, which just would not have been around or worn as something that is just a, you know a, a statement of fact about one's identity. 
Um, and then kind of, so this fluidity of identity then converges with, uh, and, and the fact that people have so much just hanging out there in public online um, converges with the uh, the changing nature of what is public and private, um, which technology presents. You know what I'm talking about? And I just feel like this generation yeah. is kind of in the laboratory on that. Well, the odd thing is, is that we're at a time where it's moving actually in two different extremes. Mm-hmm. There's the progressive trends that you're identifying towards more tolerance and acceptance of um, diversity of identities. But we also have an increased level of religiosity, not just in the United States, but around the globe, where the intolerance around these issues has actually magically in, or magnificently increased. Um, you know, I think about how different Iran was, you know, in the 1970s versus where it is right now. Um, so we, these are diff- they're moving at different trends. What's unique about all of this and where it does connect into technology is that our identities and our sense of self are very much shaped by the people around us. Yeah. Our mental models of the people around us historically were about groups. Right. Yeah. We were all part of the same town. We were all part of the same uh, religion. We were all part of the same, um, you know, basketball team. These were bounded entities. One of the fabulous things that's happened because of social media is that you understand yourself to be a part of a network that your network overlaps with but is not identical to your best friend's network, Mm -hmm. right? And so obviously you always understood you had different family, but at the same time, you didn't understand where these friend connections, you know, your your cousin's best friend that, you know, that you see every summer, but you don't actually, but your best friend doesn't see, like all of these ways of understanding things. When all of this becomes visible through social media, you realize the power of these networks. And that's one of the things that resists back in all of this is this awareness that we're all connected in really significant ways. But it's also what allows us to see where there are huge divisions in society yeah. right? and where the norms are still getting you know, separated. So even though we might all be on you know, one social platform, we're not using the platform in the same way. We don't see it in, in, in terms of the kinds of content we see. We don't see the content in the same way. Okay, you know, you, I always joke with— Sorry, hmm? go on. I always joke with uh, you know adults that most teenage Twitter users never see a URL in their Twitter stream, right? Which is absolutely astonishing to most adult users who think that the only reason Twitter exists is to share URLs. <laughs> okay, right, um, um, right. And I mean, you know, I, so I have I have teenage children, and I've thought there, there was a period um, when I. When my children, when my daughter, I mean, of course, this technology has evolved so rapidly even between the two of them, you know, between their ages. But when I realized she was never talking on the phone at night, you know, and I thought, gosh, does she not have friends? Or You know, because for me, my whole memory of my teenage years is talking on the phone all evening. And then you realize that they're actually interacting wildly um, and not just with one person. I mean, my son does Twitter. And so, you know, he's kind of theoretically interacting with 200 of his best friends, you know, at any given moment. It's... But but uh, but but I guess what I'm saying is it's it's still the same phenomenon, um, but it, it's so uh, and and yet it's very different. But I guess you know what I wanted to, what I'm curious about is, for example, this fluidity of identity and everything hanging out there. And right now, you know, parents. Let's just go back to parents. Are so concerned about what their children are putting up online right now that is going to come back to haunt them when they have their first real job interview, right? <laughs> Ten or fifteen years from now, and yet. And, and 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 yet at the same time the world the world is changing so that so that uh, 
what used to be a secret, what used to be something that you had to keep secret, so many of those things in that category no longer are. I don't know. Am I being clear? I just yeah. I you know think about it. We have our last three U.S. presidents. I smoked and didn't inhale. Um, Yes, yes, I did cocaine, but then I found God, and I was young. Get over it. Right, Um, (laughs) right, exactly. An interesting transition. Yes. Um, For a lot of today's young people. They're going to be able to live down their past, and we're all going to have made mistakes, and it's going to be funny, and there's things we laugh at, and it's no big deal. Where trouble occurs are for those who actually lack privilege um, already, and then they're automatically, you know, uh, put uh, at risk in a totally different way. No, what do you and mean? the further they have to, hmm? how, how is that? Explain that. So, let me give a concrete example okay. here. Um, in the early days of MySpace, when it was the cool technology, I received a phone call from an Ivy League admissions officer. And they wanted to, uh, they had accepted a young man um, living in South Central who'd written a beautiful essay about wanting to leave behind the gangs he'd grown up with. Um, and they were very proud of the fact that they were using social media to learn more about applicants. Um, they felt that this made them you know, more informed as, um, as admissions officers. Um, but they went to his, um, to his profile and they found that it was filled with gang insignias. And so they asked me a question. Why would he lie to us when we can tell the truth online? Right now, I've spent enough time in South Central to know that this young man probably was living in a context where, you know, his cousins, his family members, his his friends, the extended network in which he was living were all gang affiliated. In other words, it would be a survival tactic. And then he probably wasn't lying to the, to the you know, admissions officer. He just was trying to navigate two wildly different contexts simultaneously, which is extraordinarily difficult. Right, right. And what happens, and the reason why we get anxious about how to read stuff from the past is because we imagine the context of you hanging out with your friends and the context of you applying for a job to be two radically different contexts. And this is true <laughs> for some people, but it is more true for others, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, for most privileged young people, you know, yeah, we're going to look up and see the things they did when they were 16. And boy, are they going to look like dumb and they were 16. And it's going to be something that we can laugh about. And even if, you know, it involves a red cup, it's just not going to be that big of a deal. But for young people for whom there's a greater distance to walk, you know, in terms of thinking about privilege, we're going to have a much more difficult, you know, responsibility. And this is one of the reasons why I think that it's the, the burden is not on us to help young people figure out how to imagine every possible future context. Nobody can live that way. No adult can live that way, let alone a young person right, who has right. a long path to navigate. The burden should be on all of us to think about what are we doing when we interpret the data that we see? How do we understand people in the context they were in and understand that people change and that no matter what, you're not your 16-year-old self. Yeah. I probably wouldn't hire your 16-year-old self, right? But I want to hire you now, yeah. right? So how do, yeah. you, how do you think about that transition? And, and you know, so I mean, just to make this personal, you know, you have this a piece on your, on your website, which is called an itty-bitty autobiography slash smattering of facts, <laughs> which is just... So interesting, so granular in some ways, so much more of an introduction of yourself, um, which is in a which is in a space that is at this one in the same time professional and personal, right? I mean, it, it's it's a new phenomenon, and it, I mean, you're not alone in that. But that 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 younger generations present themselves to the world um, in a with a fullness and. Um, 
and in, in, in a lack of inhibition that is, that I really do think is actually new new in human history, and and even that that transparency, you know, and integrity, and that those two things are connected, are kind of moral values, virtues um, for new generations. But this is where I, I also know that I have the privilege to be able to do that. I have okay. I have a computer science degree. I have an you know an Ivy League admissions or you know, sorry an mm. Ivy League degree. Mm-hmm. Like I can get away with so much, and I am painfully aware of that. Mm-hmm. And so I have no compulsion to to hide any aspect of myself because I can make a decision not to be in a place who doesn't accept me as who I am. Um, but it's also in recognizing that that I'm really attentive to the reality that most people don't have that. Um, and it's one of those things where I'm also willing. I'm also fully aware of how the mistakes that I made in the past are part of the present. And sometimes those mistakes are not simply about um, the things that I should be ashamed of, but also the things that put me in a bad light. You know. And so, yeah. you know, as I mentioned, I started this this blog in 1997. And if you go back to those those early posts, you will quickly find that the date is much later than what I just you know initially explained it as, as the beginning of a school semester. Mm. And the reason is, is that I deleted many of those posts. Okay. I deleted many of those posts and I struggled with it, not because I was ashamed of anything that I posted, but because, you know, I opened up that blog talking about navigating the issues of rape on a personal level, talking about how to na- how I navigated other harassment issues, really abusive situations, because that was part of what I was working through at the time. And I'm not ashamed of that. I will talk in any context about the fact that I went through those experiences. But I found that it was one of the most awkward ways of introducing myself to somebody of like, hi, I'm Dana. I'm a rape victim. Like, that's just not how I wanted to start a conversation. Right. And so this is also where it's really tricky of how do you modify these moments of self-presentation, you figure out how to figure out how to find the right context in which to portray certain things and how to shift over time. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges for anybody navigating these media. How do they... Yeah. How do you, con- what can you control? Mm-hmm. What can't you control? Right. There's a lot I can't control what, you know, a search engine brings up as the top thing. So how do I figure out how to navigate that? And how do I recognize where I have privilege and where I don't? And how do I find a way to communicate that holistically to somebody else? And and so again, you know, you know, bringing this bringing this to life and to the question that's on so many people's minds um, of my generation, um, how you've been really clear that parents catastrophizing about the fact that their children have online lives and just trying to kind of blanket clamp down on it is not only not helpful but potentially damaging. But but how would you talk about how? We, as parents or other adults in the lives of of people who are living with technology in a way that is completely new and unusual to us, how we can help them become discerning and navigate um, that challenge that you just described between what they're putting out there and who they are and the you know and who they're going to be for the rest of their lives. I think it's about moving away from a set of prescriptions, this is how you should act, Mm -hmm. to thinking more about how do you get young people to be critically self-reflective about every decision that they're making, and how do you get it to evolve? Mm 
right? And so I think a lot about um, this great book by uh, an anthropologist named Jean Briggs, who wrote a book called Inuit Morality Play. And she talked a lot about how young Inuit children learn morality in ways that are completely opposite to how American youth learn uh, morality. So imagine that your you know son comes up to you and is like, you know, mommy, 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 I hate Bobby. He's mean. The American response will be like, I love you. It's okay, right? This attempt to be really supportive. The Inuit response will be, well, why don't you kill him? <laughs> right, and of course, you cannot imagine asking this in a school in a school playground. I do not recommend yep. this. Um, but one of the things that you know your son, assuming he's not a sociopath, will do is respond to you. Well, I don't hate him that much. Yeah. Well, how much do you hate him? And you start asking these questions, and all of a sudden, your son works out that like he's just really upset by this situation, and he, you know, and then you get to a point of like, well, what do you want to do about it? And you get a child to start reflecting and thinking from a very early age. Mm. And also the this fact that some- he has to continue to share the world with Bobby, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so this mm-hmm. is how do you make those transitions? That that's obviously the, the the story of a child. How do you make those transitions all the way through the teenage years? Mm-hmm. You know, I'll never forget. Uh, I, I, this is the personal story of it all, which is that um, I, when I was eighteen and I was off in college, I shaved my head. And I knew this was going to upset my mother. Oh, did I know this? And sure enough, I got home and, you know, oh, you know, this is terrible. You're so ugly. Like, don't you understand what you've done to yourself? You know, cry, cry, cry. And, of course, I'm sitting here patting myself on the back being like, ha, 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 that was always my intention. (laughs) Um, And then meanwhile, I go and I see my grandmother. And she takes one look at me and goes, hmm, you look like you were in the Holocaust and walks off. Right. Nothing was more effective at getting me to rethink what I was trying to present with this shaved head. Right. And, you know, it's those little moments, those moments where you can get people to think where the most transformative actions occur. And this is how I really feel we should be approaching the Internet with regard to young people. We adults, we don't know it better than we they do. And so anytime we try to tell them what to do, all we sound like is we're saying, and back in my day, I walked, you know, uphill both ways, right? right? Like, it's terrible. Instead, it's like, how do you ask the questions that force the reflection that is actually productive? That's not the judgmental question of like, why are you doing that? Yeah. But it's 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 the question of saying... Huh, that's intriguing. Here's how I interpret it. What were you trying to achieve here? Right. right? It's this mm-hmm. moment of like dialogue. You have more and conversation, less surveillance. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think we need a lot of that. And this is this is where I do think parents, teachers, other have a really important role to play in all of this. Mm-hmm. But it's about helping young people transition from a point where you're protecting them to a point where they're independent. And that transition requires helping them be independent, critical, thoughtful thinkers. Yeah, boy, but I don't know. You know no, how, but it's hard. It's hard, right? I mean, the question no is, we, you know, I'm not necessarily <laughs> gr- sure we were great at this before social media came along, right? I mean, these are new skills we have to learn kind of as a species. Um, but well, I think skills we probably always should have learned. Yes, it's but, just that they become all the more important. Exactly. Now. Don't you think the stakes get higher? Um, the stakes get higher through this technology somehow, or the I don't know. It's more intense. Well, it's also it's also let's be honest. This was done collectively as a society and passed mm-hmm. in ways where we put all the burden on parents in the nuclear family in the present. Yeah. So part of what's really transitioned is not simply the technology, but it's the way we've architected our society where we put all of the burden for education on a very few number of adults rather than thinking about the diversity of adults. And this is where, you know, when I'm advising parents on how to think about raising their children, you know, I'm really, 
for lesson number one, build out as large of a network of other adults in your child's life from the time that they are two on up, right? They need that network because at some point they're not going to want to talk to you about something. Yeah. And that network is where you get a lot of that learning from. You can't do it all yourself. And we do a disservice to our children by assuming that you can. Right, right. And, and you know, I, I wonder a lot about so you know, well, let's just back into this. So you know, the language of digital natives, um, which I know you is problematic, um, and you 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 write in a, in very interesting ways about that. Um, still, and I've and I've heard that recently that from a few people that 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 language is problematic to people who really understand the history of it. But I think that for those of us who kind of walked onto this frontier of the internet in midlife where we feel like we are, you know, always just trying to catch up and 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 truly trying to learn a foreign language. Um and then you have children who who are who are, you know, who are growing up fluent um and uh and and progressing kind of beyond you. Um it 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 has felt like a helpful image for me. Um and and I've wondered, well, I guess, but you know, even like setting that language aside, I mean, I have I have wondered, and I just want to ask you if if um, it it seems like be, you know whatever you call it, because our our kids have grown up in this territory, grown up with social media, grown up knowing this language, they are also going to have different instincts and intuitions that we just don't possess. I mean, almost physically built into them. Um, the reason that I object to the digital natives frame yeah. is because it it assumes that skills and learning just come down from the sky magically yeah. um, for people who are born at a certain time or of a certain age. Young people spend a tremendous amount of time learning how to navigate these these tools, these technologies, the people. They're not afraid of them, so they're willing to experiment. And the potential, you know, outcome is so much greater for them than it is for most adults who feel like this is a waste of time. And their networks and friends are all willing to experiment and explore with them. Yeah. So they devote this time into learning it, which is one of the reasons why they seem so much better equipped. And they are because they've got that time. But at the same time, when we use the term digital natives, we assume then that adults don't have any anything to teach young people. And right. that is right. so not true. Right. Yeah. Young people don't know how to construct a query. They don't understand how information is architected. They don't necessarily understand the, the broader media landscape, the kinds of propaganda that go on. They don't necessarily understand, you know, biases within the algorithms that they see. You know, and so when we hear these messages, I hear them all the time, like a site like Wikipedia is bad, and then teenagers will tell me, but my teacher told me that Google is good. And you're just sitting there going, how do you think that Google comes up with the answers? They're like, well, they choose the best ones. And you're like... And who does this? And they're like, oh, well, somebody that works at Google. And you're like, no, <laughs> that's not how this works. Yeah. And so there's this moment of these of assuming the, the capabilities because they've learned something in the social realm will apply to everything else related to the technology. And the place where I really worry about this is that we need technical skills in this country as a critical part of our economy and our future. And because we have spent so much time assuming kids to be perfectly competent because they're using yeah. you know, in Instagram happily, we're not actually investing in helping them become critical and you know intelligible users of these tools such that they can act, they can transfer it into something that is you know akin to building them. 
Right, right. I, I and I, I love, I love that. I, I love what you're saying. Um, uh, and again, it's kind of, kind of applying old-fashioned, you know, ancient wisdom that worked before to, to, to cutting-edge technologies. That even if, even as, um, new generations have a familiarity. Um, with something, they still need elders and mentors um, to learn from, right? I mean, something like discernment and judgment and wisdom um, is also nurtured and cultivated and 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 taught cross generationally, whatever the medium they, is. Absolutely, and they need time to explore. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why more privileged youth who have their own devices are learning these kinds of basic social technology skills much faster than less privileged youth. And so part that's a, where we see that gap growing because we just assume it to come down from on high. And we have the, you know a huge chunk of American youth who do not have access to reliable internet on a daily basis, who do not have their own computer and are doing everything through their smartphone. You know, this is where we start to see these unbelievable gaps in skill development because a lot of it is is not just the elders, but it's also the time and the tools to explore these things. Okay. And, you know, Sherry Turkle makes the point that um, although we feel like the Internet has taken over our lives in the last, whatever it's been, <laughs> 15, 20 years, 10, I don't know, um, the Internet is in its infancy and that it's up to us as human beings to grow this medium up and to shape it to human purposes. I mean, I wonder, and I get, I do want to come back to this, you know, the, something that's that's in the digital native language, even if it's if it's problematic, you know, do do our do kids who are who are growing up with this stuff, do you think they? Um, Maybe just partly because of all this time they can spend and this formative time they can spend, you know, are they going to bring um, instincts and insights to this task of shaping technology to human purposes that, that, that we maybe can't imagine now? I mean, I struggle with that question because I don't think most of them are paying one iota attention to the broader architecture of how these systems are built. They are using these tools to talk to their friends. And all they care about is the sociality of it, not the systems as a whole. And they're not even paying that much attention to the information components of it, just the communication aspects of it. Now, there are young people who are more at the margins who are totally challenging things. And they're the same geeks <laughs> that were doing this in, in previous generations. And I, and I heart them, right? They're adorable. Um, you know, and my group was always challenging, you know, the security economy. I've met plenty of young hackers who are challenging the attention economy. And in doing so, they're trying to remake and rethink a lot of these tools. I think that this you know, small segment of the population will do phenomenal things to shape our tools. I think that the majority of young people will have no involvement or investment in it just because they happen to use it. Mm-hmm. Has it always, I wonder if at every point in human history it's it's been a small group of people who brought about real change or I don't know, is that a cop-out? Well, out? I think that the thing that is different now versus <laughs> mm-hmm. where my cohort when we grew up with regard to the internet, yeah. it was us as the geeks and there was no one else. Today, yes, there are the young people who are the geeks 
And there are major global companies who are deeply invested in very particular decisions being made about these tools. And there are major you know, governments who are deeply invested in very particular decisions being made about these tools. And that is a very different equation. Um, and so what it means is that, you know, my cohort, we're just kind of like, you know, keep those companies and the governments just away from us. And they were just like, uh, yeah, you guys smell. We'll keep you off on the side. <laughs> um, and it was fine. But now that this has become a driver of the economy, a driver of political action, all of a sudden the investments coming in from, you know, extraordinarily powerful actors make the actions of the geeks uh, much more Difficult, and this is where um, it's not just in terms of being able to be creative and innovative and imagine a different future, but this is that many of the actions of those young geeks are being scrutinized and being declared illegal, right? And yeah. so, you know, the number of young geeks that I have watched get into trouble over the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right, for challenging the status quo, for questioning what basic assumptions are. And needless to say, you know, the last year has been a conversation about, you know, security and, you know, what, you know, obviously the Snowden revelations in the NSA, but, you know, all the way up through any number of violations, security violations, right, J.P. Morgan and Chase, Target, yeah. all of these. So such that we we need people to be thinking holistically about this, but not just powerful actors. And I fear that this conversation is quickly turning into one where the powerful are having a conversation rather than those who are deeply invested in, in creating possible alternate futures for the tools. Do you think that there are um, real ways, even if they're subtle, in which you know the technology we live with now is changing the practice of human community, is changing the nature of human relationship? How do you think about that question? And I really mean on the kind of everyday level, you know. Right. I mean, one of the places where I see it, you know, really concretely is how we communicate. And so, you know, historically, we learn to communicate um, through face-to-face environments as our dominant form of communication. And even when we wrote letters, we had to rely on a you know tremendous delay for them to occur. So you wrote these long letters, and you sent them, and then you waited, and you hoped to receive one back. Um, obviously, the phone came in, and we thought about verbal communication in that way. Well, as we saw, started to see new... Um, you know, pretty much real-time written technologies, we started seeing young people really practice ways of speaking, you know, through these written media. And it wasn't just about, you know, finding a way to take formal speech into a normal, another environment, but it was a way of playing with language, right? And and this is where English professors went aghast everywhere um, <laughs> because people would have these playful ways of trying to turn the word into, into an art of expression um, and play with it, right? Whether we're talking emoticons or whether we're talking purposeful manipulations of spelling. I have to say, um, I am deeply, deeply worried about the future of spelling and grammar, but that's another subject. I mean, I'm worried about that, but I would blame it on No Child Left Behind. Uh, okay. um, so there's, you know, I, I think that we are actually undermining writing, writing as a practice in the school yes. environment because of testing. Um, but Young people spend more time reading and writing today than they ever have before in history. I know. Um, and so it's one of those. I'm not worried about it holistically. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about our, our schooling situation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, what's actually shifting right now and what's going to be a really radical shift is things are turning visual very fast. So whether it's a photograph or whether it's a six-second video, we're seeing everything being done visually and self-expression having a visual form to it. The reason that this is important is that um, we see a shift in terms of how people navigate conflict, right? They don't mm. do it verbally, uh, mm. you know, in the ways they have in the past because they don't get to get together in person, right? So they don't have opportunities. And the reality is that that means that they practice it more in a textual environment. This is already changing the workforce um, in that, you know, when there's a conflict between um, a younger employee and an older one, the younger employee's first instinct is to go to a written medium um, and to try to articulate out what's going on in whatever corporate email um, or whatever medium makes sense on a written level as opposed to thinking about scheduling a meeting, right? That's just not part hmm. of the culture. Hmm. So that is significantly changing. Right. Um, but this is also about how we practice, right? People who complain about this forget that we caused it. We don't let young people get together face-to-face <laughs> right, that right, often. Right. So I, it's, you know, that's mm-hmm. where it's really tricky. You know, I don't I don't blame young people. They're, they're practicing and learning with whatever environment environment they have. Um, I think visual, the the amount of time and creativity that young people are spending on a visual medium um, is really going to be interesting in about f- 10 years. Um, I think we're just beginning to see, we're seeing it play out socially, but I'm curious what it will mean long term. Um, and I think that that will be pretty powerful because people have learned that this is an amazing, you know, mechanism of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, most of the selfies are lame, right? <laughs> so what? <laughs> it's more a matter of how does that go and grow and how do people explore that? You know, it, it, it struck me as I was getting ready to interview you um, that, that this technology is changing the the way we we kind of tell the story of the narrative of our lives the way we navigate and describe and document our life trajectory and that that you know that that I, I don't know I mean I feel like that must be changing us I mean you're a very interesting person with many passions and you know you've had all these kinds of fascinating chapters and but there's something it seems to me there's something in the pattern of your life that, that says something about our lives with technology as that's emerging. You know, there's a there's a kind of hyperlink quality. <laughs> I hope you don't mind me. You know, to to your there's kind of a hyperlink quality to your autobiography, right? And it's about you know you know at any given moment there was this adventure, this passion, this cause, this course, and you know you there's a there's an absolute you know fascinating trajectory there, but there's a lot going on. And it's just there's a do you know what I'm talking about? There's a there's a structure to it and a way of describing it and delving into it that feels um, like it mirrors this medium of technology that we that we work with now to tell those stories. Do you know what I'm talking I, about? I think I think in many ways it's like I live in a world of networks and I live in a world that's unbounded. Mm-hmm. And I whenever I come up with uh, come come up against um, any bounded, you know, ecosystem. I kind of repel from it, and, and sometimes more productively than others. And part of aging is getting to be a little bit more responsible about um, what happens when I uh, rebel and repel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of it for me was being again apophenia. It's about making all of these different connections, and I think that a lot of 
you know, young people, as they start them, start to watch them navigate a world, they don't think about moving between these different bounded conditions. They think yeah. about how to extend their lives across all of it. As something as simple as what it means to go off to college is no longer about cleaving the past and moving on to this new present. Instead, it's about uh, finding ways to make connections between the people that you're still in contact with, you know, through Snapchat all the way into your, your you know, collegiate environment and pulling those people into your new network. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is a blessing and a curse. I think it's a blessing for a lot of people who, because they can see all of these different connections, they can build out all of this. But it's also much more challenging for those to escape or move away from, um, you know, conditions that may not have been ideal for them, whether we're talking about LGBT identified individuals or anybody seeking to make a big break. Um, there's, you know, a lot of scholarship um, looking at, at um, class mobility, socioeconomic mobility, that shows that the only real way in which socioeconomic mobility is really possible is when you cleave the past in order to go on to this to new a new present, uh, because the norms are so different. But you do so at the expense of a lot of your family and friends and and network in a lower socioeconomic environment. Um, and so, of course, you know, the analysis. This is this is Paul Willis's work. The analysis. Um, in you know how working class kids get working class jobs is that they often are much more comfortable staying in what is familiar, mm. and so there is a moment where I'm also I'm both excited by the networks that can be created, but also nervous. And to what degree do they pull people in directions because of social norms and because of peer pressure, where they don't make transformations because the costs of those networks network jumps are so high. Hmm. Huh. Um. I. I actually, we just have, I want to do just about 10 more minutes, but I wanted to just ask behind the glass because I feel like, you know, this life with technology is such a collective thing. And I just want to see if any of my producers has a question um, for me sure. to ask you. Um, and we don't have a lot of time, but I'm, so I'm going to be quick. So yeah, Trent. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing that is fascinating um, for those of us who are parents, and also I'll say, like, even for our media project, is how um, the internet and the things that happen online. Uh, it seems, it seems to me that there's kind of an accelerating, you know, application of those things from offline to in the flesh, and that even. The fact that we're that especially at the new generations, but actually not just the new generations. I mean, everybody's on Facebook or Twitter or something now. There's there's all this online relationship, but then there's also this rage for convenience and for flesh and blood connection. Um, do 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 you, do you see that? Is that something um, that you observe? The the person I think about is um, Eric Kleinenberg, who's a sociologist who wrote uh, a book called Going Solo. And the book is all about why more people live alone now, today, than ever before. And what he argues in, the, in, in this book is that 
we are oversaturated with internet inter- uh, connections with other people. Our professional worlds are far more social than they were historically, especially yeah. when you think about agricultural times or industrial times. Yeah. Um, we have the choice to connect at any given point through social interactions. And as a result, we choose to live alone um, in order to get a break from it all, um, which is intriguing. So I think that there's this moment where you think about how sociality works and the ways in which people are delighting it and overwhelmed by it Mm -hmm. um, and the different kinds of connections that can be made. The Technology-driven connections, when you know when there's like a new connection, are usually done through some interest-level connection, right? Yeah. You share a passion for Pokemon, you you know, or underwater basket weaving, right? Yeah. You uh, you know, you're doing a task together. And so you're really connected intellectually, which can be wonderful for certain things, but it is very different than sitting there and going with your friends, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there is something mm-hmm. about that moment where you're you're not even necessarily talking, but you're seeing a movie together or you're, you know, just having an experience together. And so where I see people playing this out is that they're thinking holistically about how to balance this personally, professionally, collectively. Um, and you have far more choices today than you ever had before. And it used to be only you had to live in a city to have these kinds of choices. Now you mm. get overwhelmed with choices even if you don't live in, you know, in New York City. Um, and so more and more people are grappling with it. Um, and it's also one of the reasons why I think that there's a lot of metaphorical uses of uh, or using using urban dynamics as a metaphor for a lot of this. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, how do you deal with civil inattention? Right. How do you just not look right? Which is the classic subway thing. Right. I am done for the day. I don't want to talk to any more people. And so I'm going to ignore that all of the rest of you are on the subway with me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to think about how to do that now online because it's a way of getting a break. But at the same time, you still want connection, but only certain kinds of connection. And so it gets, it feels murky, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think that it makes sense if you think about it holistically. Yeah. We're living with this new thing and we're, we're having to create new boundaries and new structures to. to, And we're having to think about it rather than just accepting whatever defaults seem to have been in existence in the past. Yeah. So you've used language, language like, you know, creating the networked world we all want to live in, you know, encouraging parents to, um, to see this social media and the internet as an opportunity and not just a danger, you know, what what would you offer along those lines in in terms of you know kind of you know that that adventure of treating this as an opportunity? Where to, where to begin? I mean, from my perspective, it's about stepping back and not assuming that just the technology is transformative and saying, okay, what are we trying to achieve here, right? What what does balance look like? What does happiness look like? What does success look like? What are these core tenets or values that we're aiming for? And how do we achieve them holistically across our lives? You know, and certainly when, when parents are navigating this, I think one of the difficulties is that to recognize that this is what your values are, and they may be different from your child's values, right? And so how do you learn to sit and have a conversation of like, here's what I want for you. What do you want? And how do we balance that? And that's a negotiation that's really hard um, because it was almost in many ways assumed historically um, that parents and children had the same intentions. And that's generally not true, especially as we've started to stress out our children in tremendous ways. Um, And so I think about it, you know, in terms of all of us, how do you find your own sense of grounding? You know, 
people are always shocked with me because I'm I'm one of the biggest proponents of technology. I love it. And yet I also take an annual um, email sabbatical. Um, I wanted to ask is, you about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I take this time each year where I don't just bounce my message and send a nice vacation mail like um, most people do, but I literally bounce it. You cannot send me email during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sends, you know, a pretty hysterical message, you know, basically saying, you know, the, the goblins have, you know, gobbled up all of the uh, all of the email. It's gone. It'll never get to me. Um, and it sends you different options. And it says you can contact me after this date. You can send me snail mail or you can call my mother, right? And anybody who knows to call my mother knows that that's going to be like a minimum three-hour call, right? So it's like it's an ongoing joke between all of us. Um, including my mother, who's always like, and why are random strangers calling me? I'm like, huh, here we go. But the reason that that email sabbatical is really important for me is it forces me to think about time. I don't just disappear. I go through all of these steps to communicate with everybody that depends on me and make certain that they have what they need from me before I leave, rather than assuming I will always be in contact, right? Which is, that's the danger of the, of the always-on environment, is that mm. when you're always assumed, then you never close things down. You never take care of your communication with people. So I start this many months in advance, right? And then I communicate to people about, you know, the fact that I'll be gone. And then I do turn off my email. And the big joke, because I, you know, I'm a Unix geek and I have all the ProcMail scripts, and so I have the logs, which show that very few people email me because they get it, right? We've negotiated this out ahead of time. And it allows me to go offline and think about reflecting in a different way, right? And I find that extraordinarily valuable because I get to rethink and recenter. And it's not just that I physically break from the Internet. I leave my home environment. I live in New York City, which is a bustling, insane city. Mm. And I go hiking into a place where there are no people for hours, right? And that is totally acceptable. And I purposefully shake up my entire worldview in order to find grounding, in order to find balance. And so part of of why I say this reflection is that these technologies are out there. There are so many opportunities out there to connect, to communicate, to get information. We need to be more thoughtful about what we want to achieve and how to articulate that in our lives and how to achieve it collectively, individually, and as a community. And, you know, it's just what you're, what you're saying, you know, what, when you talk about the need to find happiness and balance and centering and grounding, I mean, again, that, those are the age-old, ancient, essential um, human challenges. Nothing's changed on that one. What? what? <laughs> Nothing has changed Nothing on that Nothing has changed, but I think you're saying, so, you know, in, in one way, technology, even by making some of that stuff harder, is actually forcing us to need to negotiate and, and have conversations and be intentional about these things in a way that we, that we didn't have to be intentional before. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a tool, it's a, you know, it's a vice for some, it's a, you know, a way of connecting. There's all of these different layers to it. It's a very complex system. And yes, historically, we've had other systems, but they usually are, are not as complex. Yeah. Um, and we've had to think about how being to be responsible in relationship to anything. You know, if you think about it in terms of ancient, you know, religious texts, you think about gluttony, right? Think about, you know, mm. what is our relationship to food? We agree that food is a ne- 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 uh, necessity, but what's the level in which it's accepted? 
acceptable. Yeah. Um, you know, we agree that sociality is a necessity, but what's the level that is acceptable? How do we balance this? Um, and you know, I think that the danger is that we just assume that it's more like alcohol, right? Which is that um, it's always bad in, in you know that you know <laughs> you're always on the edge of having a very unhealthy relationship with it. Or maybe right. I should say a harder drug. And I would say that's not necessarily the metaphor we should be working with here. Um, and so I think, though, you know, like all of these other stimuli, though, we should step back and say, hey, what is the relationship I want to have with people, with food, with with substances, with with the Internet, with my environment? Um, and that's where I do think that there's a spiritual ask to all of this. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, well, I have to let you go for spiritual reasons, or Israeli reasons anyway, <laughs> if not religious reasons. <laughs> this is just great. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Yeah, great. All right, have a good rest of the day. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.